Thank you for your prayers. Doing better, making progress. Had five out of seven good days this week. Oh, nice. Very nice. I didn't, didn't see that. <laughs> well, let's continue in our Through the Bible study this morning in consideration of messages. Continue from where we left off last week. We're in a section of the Bible as we work our way through the Bible piece by piece. Uh, a section of the Bible that began with the book of Joshua. Oh, and we're going to say goodbye to the middle school and high school kids. Adios, there they go. There they go. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good afternoon. And if I don't see you tonight, good evening. All right, Jason. All right. We'll continue in our Through the Bible series. We're in a section of the Bible that began in Joshua, and we'll end hopefully next week in Second Chronicles, and then we'll take a break from this approach to the messages each week and move on to another subject that the Lord's put on my heart that I think you're going to find really helpful. Uh, last week, uh, we just didn't get through the message, and so we're going to finish it this week. I thought the Lord was pretty faithful to be here. And, you know, sometimes you just gotta, you got to concentrate on what he's doing in the room and let him do it and stop with your own plans, and, and that's what we did. And so, while well, I think the rest of what he gave me was still relevant and important for us, and from him, you know, we, uh, we just kind of ran out of time last week, so we'll just pick it up this week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to be with your sons and daughters in Christ, with, uh, with the gathering of this people that you call the vineyard here in Grove City, uh, this, this place that you have formed by your own hand, by your own heart, that it came out of nothing, and now it's something, and it's only something by the sustaining power of your Holy Spirit. That there is no man in charge, we're not organized well enough to sustain ourselves, Lord, nor will we be. We're just going to be a gathering of believers in your hand who do what you say to do as we sense you saying to do it. But we as believers are committed to your word, Lord. Your Bible is everything to us. We are not making this up as we go along, but we put ourselves under the authority of your word. And if you say so, we believe it. And if you say to do it, we'll do it. And so we invite you during this time in the power of the Holy Spirit to come And explain some portion of your word to us. Bring some insight that bears weight and forms us. And comes and shoots us in the heart if necessary, Lord. But definitely sends us from this place as stronger, more powerful, more indwelt by your word. More filled with your Holy Spirit. More committed to your cause and your will than when we came. Father, I pray for every person in here in the hearing of this word. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would come now and would translate the words of my mouth, Father, between my mouth and their ears to be exactly what each person needs to hear from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords today. Because we can't do this on our own. We don't want to try. So we come to you this morning and we invite you to come and enliven your word with power in specific ways that speak to our lives and that bring you the most possible glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As uh, you're aware, in this through the Bible approach, I want to continue with the same structure 
by looking at context, main storylines, and then a weekly hotspot. We did all the context last week, so by very quick review, uh, it, the context of First and Second Kings is from the death of King David to the fall of Jerusalem, 960 B.C. to 587 B.C. Very important dates, and as I mentioned last week, we're now at a place where in world history there are enough extra-biblical sources that we can begin to date with accuracy and by comparison to these things when these biblical events actually occurred. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah during the 6th century B.C., and that will become more important to think about next week when we look at First and Second Chronicles because of something that happened between Jeremiah and the person who wrote First and Second Chronicles, which I'll just give you a little spoiler, it was Ezra. So uh, that's going to make a difference. But this is the context of First and Second Kings. The main storylines of First and Second Kings are the establishment of the royal throne of King David, David, the, the books open with David well advanced in his years. Adonijah, his son, is making a run at the throne. Uh, David is not aware of this. And uh, Bathsheba comes and says, wasn't Solomon meant to be this, the king? He says, absolutely. And so Adonijah is thrown out. Solomon is established as the king. Very important story. And then throughout First and Second Kings, you have a description of all the kings of Israel and Judah, with the exception of Saul, King Saul, the first king. All of them appear in, in there. Um, and then you also see a main storyline of Solomon's brilliant reign, a time of peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel. He was brilliant in his reign. He was wise beyond any person who has ever lived. But then you also see the storyline of Solomon's tragic end, that while he was blessed with wisdom by requesting this from God, he didn't walk in wisdom in the end of his life, and he had a very tragic end to his life. So having said those things, we started in on the hot spot last week, which is the same as this week, 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 13. And since I went through it in some detail last week, I'm just going to kind of assume that in your minds. And if you weren't here last week, for whatever reason, you can pick it up on, on our website if you want to kind of put some pieces together that may not immediately click this morning. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, it's the account of Solomon's wives. And Solomon, although he was the wisest man in the world, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is so befuddling, is it not? I mean, it is absolutely a full-time job for me to keep this one woman in control that I have. Just, I, I, I just, last Wednesday we celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary and, well, we started in middle school is why, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, I finally got her where I want her now, you know. After all these years, I can't imagine adding 699 more in any stretch, but this is where we find Solomon, plus he had a harem of 300 women. So he had gone off the rails, he had stopped paying attention to God, and he was living his life any way he wanted to without any sort of consequence for that, because he was the king. 
He was not only the king of Israel, but he was such a powerful king that kings of surrounding nations were looking to him and making treaties with him, and they feared him. And so here he was saying, I can do what I want when I want. And this is how we find him. Well, it says that his wives led him astray. And uh, I understand this. I think any of you guys in the room can understand the influence that our wives can have on us, usually for the good. And uh, the things that Karen has saved me from are countless, absolutely countless. And she has learned over the years how to object to my discoveries and positions with questions rather than absolute statements and lead me to better understandings of things. And uh, we get that, but with 700 of them, there's no time for that. They just come in and say, Solomon, 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 Solomon. And it says, they, they led him astray. The Bible says, and they led him astray to their gods. They had come from other places. They had worshipped idols. Ashtoreth and Molech and Chemosh, these were the gods. We went over them and who they were last week. So this was the big problem. And the problem was something called syncretism. And that is the attempt to try to bring together a variety of religious perspectives or religions themselves and try to make everybody happy. Try to say, well, let's just worship all of these things and uh, make one big happy family Trouble is that history is, of course, replete with examples that every time this is tried on a major scale, you end up with one big unhappy family because what is required for syncretism is very serious compromise, uh, not only of other people's essential religious understandings, but your own. And we see that this is something that has affected us in in our nation today as we try to create a peaceful world, Uh, and you know my hats are off to those politicians and diplomats who find themselves in these situations to try to do this, but syncretism is not the answer, and syncretism cannot be the answer for us as a nation to try to make a peaceful world. The only answer for a peaceful world is Jesus Christ. That is the only answer to a peaceful world. And as long as we as Americans, with whether we were ever a Christian nation or not, I don't know, but we were a nation of Christians at least. And as long as we keep giving away the farm in an effort to try to make some kind of political or diplomatic peace in the world, then we are compromising the very power that we have, which is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And uh, we will never be a theocracy. We were never intended to be a theocracy. We are a democracy. But we were created as one nation under God, and God was Yahweh God. God was the God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who God was. And so we need not be apologetic about that, beloved. We need not be apologetic about that in our individual lives or in our global life. We don't need to say that quietly. We don't need to do that. And this is what's happening. That essential compromises are being made on national levels for us. And this is all in an effort to our version of syncretism. 3,000 years after Solomon, our version of this thing called syncretism. 
of just trying to just say, can't we all just get along? And in reality, unfortunately, the answer is no. We can't all just get along if we're going to stand up for the things that are absolutely true. And I wish it weren't so. I wish there were a way we could read this Bible and say, as long as you sincerely believe what you say you believe, you'll be all right. But we cannot do that. There are far too many references in the scripture to the exclusivity of the gospel and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the one way to heaven. I, I wish that weren't true. It would make life so much easier, wouldn't it? That if you're just sincere, you'll be right. No, it, unless you're sincerely placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are sincerely wrong. And this is the only time a person can afford to be narrow-minded. There's only one time in your life you can afford to be absolutely narrow-minded, and that's when you are absolutely right. And you don't have to be happy about that. You know, I take no pleasure in that, really. I have satisfaction in that. But I take no pleasure in it. I'm not arrogant about that. In fact, it moves my heart toward people who are caught up in the deceptions of the enemy of other world religions. It moves my heart for them. I don't judge them. They, they, they came by their positions honestly, did they not? They received it from their parents and their parents before them. But that doesn't make it any more right. And so this is the thing. And this is the thing that this is about. And uh, we see that this not only affects this syncretism, our nation, but it affects our families. And so we just sort of compromise in our families about the nature of Christ and who he is and the centrality of Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's difficult, and it's no easier for one person than another. We all have various ways that we face this. But also, you know, it speaks this passage to the essential importance of a quality foundation of spiritual agreement in a marriage. That Solomon's household was completely divided. He had no way to bring this house into spiritual agreement. And when a house, when a marriage is not in spiritual agreement, it is a sitting duck for the enemy. It is a sitting duck. And I don't mean just philosophical or mental agreement, but active agreement. I mean men and women coming together and, and walking in their faith together and being a part of a community of believers together and ministering together. Karen and I are never closer than when we're ministering together. And you, you'll find that to be true also. And I promised you last week that if you men would lead the way, would find a way to grab your wife's hand and take her into the bedroom and close the door and say, let's just pray about that, that your life would change for the better. In fact, I made you an audacious promise last week. I wonder how many of you have taken me up on my 33-day challenge. See how much money I should be looking for here. I'm proud of you guys. You guys who just raised your hands, I'm proud of you. I will owe you no money. You will want to come back and pay me. I promise you guys, stick with that every day. 
whether you feel like you're good at it or not, whether the time is long or short, you take her and you grab her hand and you close the door and you pray every day. And God will bless that. So now finally this morning, the ripple effect. The ripple effect, a person's actions. A person's actions do not only affect the person, do they? Our actions do not only affect us. No matter how private they, we think they are, our actions do not only affect us. Solomon's poor choices, poor decisions had tragic consequences for himself and others. There was a ripple effect to Solomon's decisions. Who here has never dropped a stone onto a glassy pond and watched the ripples? That is cool, is it not? Who here has never done that? I, I know what you mean. Uh, just drop this thing and the surface tension of the water is pierced and the amount of water exactly the same as the stone or the object you drop in is displaced because there's a law of physics that says that two things cannot occupy the same place at the same time. And so there's an energy created, an equal and opposite reaction that pushes out the water in ripples. And that's a cool thing to watch in itself, isn't it? I love to fish. Does anybody love to fish? Now, I like to say that I am the worst fisherman on the planet. I am the least, you are, okay, I, I am the least successful fisherman in the world. And uh, I don't really care. I, I have never taken fishing lessons <laughs> or paid attention to very much about what would make me more prolific in my catch. I just loved fish and being out there, and I, I love it just as the sun's barely coming up. Who knows what I'm talking about? There's a mist on the water often, and the water, the wind hasn't started blowing, and there's a, it's like glass, isn't it? And you take your line, you cast out there, and poof, ripples. That's just such a moment of hope, isn't it, guys? It's like you get this, this could be the day. <laughs> I have no idea what lies beneath the water, right? But by faith, as an act of my faith, I am dropping this thing in the water because this could be the day that that six-pound bass that's been living out there avoiding every other lure has a brain cramp <laughs> and says, I'll take that. There's so much faith and hope. But the ripples, the ripple effect. Starting in verse 7 of our text in 1 Kings 11, the Bible says, On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable God of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, 
who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Now, you can just imagine Solomon going there. This should take care of things. Everybody should be happy now. Next verse. The Lord became angry with Solomon, and because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So... The Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from your hand and give it to one of your subordinates. The consequences of his actions not only affected him in such a terrible way, but affected generations to come. And the ripple effect is a principle in life is clear. It says what we do today will matter tomorrow. And what we do in private will matter in public. What we do today will matter tomorrow, and what we do in private will matter in public. Solomon's decisions to compromise his commitment to the one true living God for the sake of accommodating his 700 wives had tragic impact that led far beyond the scope of his own life. And our current actions have serious ramifications for the level of God's blessings at which we live now and what we'll have later. We think it's okay to rationalize areas of sin in our lives and say it's okay because it's covered by the cross. The penalty is covered by the cross. Absolutely. But by rationalizing it, we voluntarily put ourselves in a place of substantially lower blessing in this life and in the life to come. Obedience always brings blessing. Either sometime in our present life, sometimes it's immediate. How many of you have ever been in worship here and the worship band did a song or maybe did something in the song that caused you to go, wow, that is just really hitting me right exactly where I'm living right now. Raise your hand if that has ever happened to you. That is because this person right here, as well as the others, they spend time in prayer. They don't just pick out their favorite songs. And they're obedient to the call of God. And because they're obedient to the call of God, then you are blessed. Raise your hand if you've ever been here when when the message was brought, you thought something like, Dag, how did he know that? You know that I'm not that smart. I... I ask God, who's going to be there and what do you want to say? And it's obedience to that that brings about a blessing for you. Raise your hand if you have ever had this blessing, that you were in a certain mindset, and maybe it was a, it was a, a violent mindset, or a difficult or depressed or whatever mindset. Raise your hand if as soon as your tires hit this property... Something switched in your mind and you were in a better... You know what I'm talking about. 
That's because hundreds of people were obedient to do two things. One, to pray for this place when it was a cornfield, that this would be a place of God's blessing. And second, to pay for this place so that you would have a place to come. And their obedience produced a blessing for you. Because obedience always produces blessing. And disobedience always produces a a ripple of curse. The Bible says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatsoever a man reaps, that shall he also sow. That is not karma. Listen. It says, do not be deceived. Don't be tricked. For God cannot be mocked. We're back to the authority of God. This verse is about accepting or rejecting the authority of God. For God cannot be mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That as we live under in obedience, under the authority of God, that we automatically put ourselves in the place of blessing. When we reject the authority of God, we are mocking God. When we are rationalizing sin in our lives, and not dealing with it in the cross and the delivering power of the Holy Spirit, we are mocking God, we are rejecting His authority, and we will reap what we sow. By the grace of God, we, we may all be forgiven of all of our secret sins, but that does not mean we will not reap the consequences of them. Obedience always ensures blessing here and in the future. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth, I'm sorry, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now there is a very powerful implication there. Out of the mouth of our Lord himself, he said that there is a way that we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That what we do here matters for later. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in your Bibles, you'll see Paul says it a different way. Paul says... Very plainly, he says, By the grace God has given me, in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For, listen, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is your foundation. That's how we are saved for eternity. But then he says, you should be careful how you build on that. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day, meaning the judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. Now, 
Going to heaven is not a reward for obedience. Going to heaven is an award because of the merits of Jesus Christ. We are awarded His righteousness. But it matters what we do next. If it is burned up, He will suffer loss. He Himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In Revelation chapter 20, there's another indication of this principle in in verse 11 speaking of the end of things and then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and now listen to this and books were opened books plural and it says another book was opened So you have books, and you have a book. This is important. It said, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now you get in by whether whether or not your name is in the book, the book of life, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and your authentic confession of Him as Savior, surrender to Him as Lord. But then as you follow his lordship and obedience, then we're going to the books. I could do this all day. I think I might. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Hallelujah. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we'll not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Yeah. And it's God who made us for this very purpose. He made you to save you. For this very purpose, and has given us the Spirit, Holy Spirit, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Our experience in the Holy Spirit is meant to tease us. It is a deposit of what's to come. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body, home with the Lord. So we make it our goal, now what? To please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from the Lord. We please Him by faith, Hebrews 11, and by obedience. For we must, catch this, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due Him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Why is that there? I just want to accept Jesus and go to heaven later, right? And you may be sitting there saying, you know, I don't really care. I'm just going to be glad to be there. I don't care if I got a Mercedes or a VW. It don't make no difference to me. I'm just going to be glad to be there. I get that. But since there's much a point made of it throughout the Bible, it has to be much more than we can imagine. And we can't apply these ways of thinking that. There's such a fuss made about it. Whew. What you do today will matter tomorrow. Maybe this tomorrow, maybe then tomorrow. And what you do in private will matter in public. That's the ripple effect. 
There's a direct correlation. Every action makes a ripple. If not for you, then for someone else. The consequences of your actions today are not limited to yourself. And you may be caught up in heinous, habitual sin that nobody else knows about, and you go, you know, I'm just begging God to deliver me from it, and I'm asking for forgiveness every time, and you're thinking it's limited to you. You are affecting the next generation. The consequences of your activities in secret will impact your public self. If you are caught up in secret habitual sin, I promise you, you are not an outspoken witness for Jesus Christ out there. The devil has tricked you. You say, who am I to speak the gospel? And the time has come for the people of God in this country to rise up and take seriously the gift of salvation that God has given to us through his son Jesus Christ and start making better ripples. Because you can make good ripples. If you look in 1 Kings chapter 11 and chapter 15, you'll see that King David made good ripples. It said in chapter 15, verse 4, it says that King David, that God, for the sake of King David, God did this because he was faithful all the days of his life except, except for with Uriah the Hittite. So he wasn't perfect, the Bible says, but he was faithful. You guys got anything to do today? Let me clarify something and then see if we can get this thing on the ground. What I'm talking about here, I'm not, this is not the gospel. This is not I'm, not, I'm not talking about the essential gospel as far as being saved. It is not about doing more good things than bad things. And the problem with this understanding of the gospel is that the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags, which means the good things don't weigh anything. <laughs> they don't pull down the scale. It's not about this. That's not what the gospel is. Because you're not saved by your obedience. But I want to tell you this, and I need to tell you this. You are saved for obedience. And so what you do next matters. You know, you don't have to pay to join the military. They've made a place for you. Uncle Sam says, in my father's barracks are many cots. (laughs) I have made a place for you. You don't have to pay. All you have to do is say what? Okay. Sign your life here, right? But when you do that, there is an obvious expectation, and that is that you are completely surrendering your will over to some commander-type person. Whether it's a drill sergeant who screams in your face, or a president who sits in an Oval Office, you are saying, I will do this, and I will be obedient to this. It costs you nothing to become a soldier Accept your life. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It costs you nothing to become a Christian except your life. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will find it. So it's time, beloved, to stop rationalizing our sin as it's all covered by the cross, which it is, positionally, but every time we do that, we cut ourselves off from the blessing of God. And it's time that the Christians in this country wake up and begin living their devotion to Jesus Christ in public. And it's time to start making new ripples. You're God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God already has plans for you. Many of you today are products of generational ripples. Listen. Many of you, the habitual and addictive struggles you have were thoughtlessly started by some generation before you. Because you're like, why am I like this? I don't even want to be like this. Ripples. Some of you actually have information to substantiate that, don't you? Well, it's time to take a stand. It's time to stop here and now. You know, the Bible says that we are a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That God wants to make you his son, his daughter, by your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And by doing that, you're part of a new generation. Many of you are products of environmental ripples. You grew up around and with people who had little or no regard for the things of God. You can, you can think of that, can't you? You're with people who are making ripples, and now you're a product of that. And it's time to take a stand. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And some of you are products of ripples of evil inspired by hell itself. You have at some point dipped your own feet in the waters of evil. Through witchcraft or sorcery or something that may have seemed so benign to you at the time, but in retrospect you now look at that and you go, Oh my God, I stood in a puddle of the devil. And to say that that, it's all good now because it's covered by the cross. The penalty is covered by the cross. Good news, you're going to heaven after this. But here's the other part of that. That until you're set free from the power of that, you will continue to live at a level much below the blessing that God has planned for you. You will struggle every day of your life on this planet. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is here in the power of the Holy Spirit to set you free. If you connect with anything that I just said, generationally, environmentally, or Satan himself and want to be set free, get up from where you are right now and run up here. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will move in every heart here. Every person who stands here, 
who is connected not by my words, but by your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit will come and you will break the curse, that you will stop this ripple that has become a tsunami effect in their lives. We turn it back in the name of Jesus and by his power. For those of you who are sexually abused, I break the curse of it in Jesus' name. I break it. Men and women, the same. I break it in the name of Jesus. Not another day will you be defined by that. For those of you who were sexually promiscuous and the devil reminds you of that, I break that in the name of Jesus By Jesus Christ, you are a son, you are a daughter of the living God. The old is gone, the new has come. Step into the newness. Power of God, come and break these generational curses. Power of God, come, break these environmental curses. Power of God, come, Break these devilish, demonic curses. In Jesus' name, we speak by His authority, you are free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Power of God, come now and set you free. I want you to picture yourself standing in front of a calm pond, body of water. It's glassy smooth. There's mist Rising. And there's a ripple coming your way. And that is the ripple caused by Jesus Christ who puts his feet on that water. Now be healed in the name of Jesus. Be healed. Be set free. Receive that ripple. Receive that. And you guys who are standing here and you guys who are sitting there, I want to invite you to surrender yourself fully to the will of Jesus Christ and to the obedience that he can bring about by the action of his Holy Spirit. Church, let's stand together. You guys stay right here in the ripples of Jesus as he stands there and just sends them toward you. The ripples of Jesus. These are good ripples. These are ripples that break every sin, that break every chain. You know, the generational ripples were people who, likely without thought of you, just fashioned these chains link by link and wrapped them around the next generation. And I break them now in the name of Jesus. Just be free.